Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your dreams. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this special edition, Lizzie O'Shea from Digital Rights Watch talks about Australia's new anti-encryption assistance and access bill. The government has proposed the Telecommunications and Other Legislation Amendment Assistance and Access Bill 2018 to give them the power to demand passwords and phone unlocking from citizens and backdoors into encrypted messaging systems from companies, which Australia will share with other members of the Five Eyes nations, the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada and New Zealand. Lizzie O'Shea is a member of the Board of Digital Rights Watch. I began by asking her, is our right to privacy protected in Australia? We don't have sufficient protections in place for privacy in Australia. We do have various privacy pieces of legislation that deal with it, but we also are quite notably missing a Human Rights Act or a charter of any kind of description, and we're the only Western country to not have a charter of rights, which would naturally include privacy as one of those rights. But what we are also seeing with this proposed piece of legislation that aims to circumvent encryption is an attack on, obviously, people's privacy because it's an attempt by intelligence agencies to circumvent encryption to get access to communications, but also a big attack on security because creating weaknesses in in encrypted systems compromises our digital security. So you can see how privacy and security there are really deeply, fundamentally linked. This new access and assistance bill? Yes, it's got a longer name, but I'm using the term encryption bill just as, as a shorthand. It seems to me they started with making the census not anonymous so they could create an identifier for us across all the departments. And then they brought in the My Health records, which are not secure and compulsory. And then they had the Data Sharing and Release Act, which sounds like an anti privacy act. It's the exact opposite of privacy data sharing and release. Yeah, this has been a long tradition. It's it's starting to be a common practice in the Australian government's proposals for legislative reform. And obviously, it's part of a broader trend around the world that probably the most explosive moment we can trace it back to is the Snowden leaks, where people start to really realise how much our digital infrastructure is being oriented towards collecting information and, and managing that information about people, both for private purposes, but also for state surveillance purposes, most obviously in relation to Snowden. I also would add into the mix of the proposals that you put forward then is the data retention bill. So the scheme to require telecommunication providers to store metadata about people for up to two years, which has been a long time in implementing and then obviously how that information is shared. There's other there's other provisions as well, like there's a, currently a biometric profiling bill before the federal parliament, which aims to create a centralised repository of biometric information, most obviously facial recognition software, so that can be used for law enforcement purposes. So we've seen lots of different proposals to make use of technology, often justified on various public policy grounds, which are then used to violate privacy in quite deep and long-standing 
demanding ways and make it very hard to have a life online that has some semblance of privacy or some way in which you can experiment and explore and be your own person without assuming that someone is collecting that information and potentially that it will fall into the hands of state authorities. But I do think this this particular bill is probably the most egregious because I feel like it's part of a long-term push from the Five Eyes, the Intelligence Alliance, which has led to this proposal. But also it really does start to – you start to see how the priorities of intelligence and deception agencies, as they're called in the bill, are prioritised over infrastructure security. So that they're prepared to import weaknesses into the system for their own purposes, which leave the rest of us vulnerable who rely on networked technology to go about our daily lives. And it's a real standoff between, I think, intelligence agencies in the surveillance state and ordinary people who want to be able to conduct themselves online without fear of that the information they share getting into the wrong hands. Are they only doing this to get criminals and terrorists or are they allowed to surveil us for other reasons? So the stated aim, when you look at Peter Dutton's second reading speech where he talks about introducing this bill, he talks mainly about terrorism. They've talked about child pornography offences and things like that. But the bill is extremely broad. It's hard to overstate that. So there's a number of ways in which it's broad. There's the number of people who can make a request or a no- or issue a notice is extremely long list. So it's, it's anti-corruption commissions as well as police head, chief officers of police in state and territory police forces. And then it's also, of course, the usual kind of agencies that you'd expect like ASIO and ISIS. So our national security agencies as well. So that's a long list of agencies who are eligible to make requests. What they can ask a a company to do is extremely broad. So it's an act or thing which can include lots of different stuff. So including themselves and keeping themselves updated on developments in technology, asking eventually to, you know, do, do anything really necessary that they can ask a company to do in order to break encryption or circumvent it. And the other way in which it's extremely broad actually is that who it applies to. So when I said companies then, I was using a shorthand as well because actually who this legislation applies to, who a notice or request for assistance can be issued to, is so extremely broad. The The Office of Cybersecurity the, under the former Minister Angus Taylor talked about how basically it's any company that runs a website in Australia. So if you provide some kind of communication service using the internet, you can be issued with a request or a notice from one of these agencies to do an act or thing, which could be extremely broad ranging. And it, there's a couple of objectives that it has to suit, but there's no consideration of the public interest. So if it, it can be brought under their remit of you know, law enforcement, which is expansive, that means that lots and lots of things could be done under this Act. It's extremely broad and very alarming in that respect. And I think it's not being given the scrutiny it needs to, given that fact. Well, that's for sure. It says they can invoke the powers for protecting the public revenue, the interests of Australia's national security, the interests of Australia's mm. foreign relations or the interests of Australia's national economic well-being. So it sounds like Mm. they can spy for foreign nations or just for money. Mm. So those objectives are very interesting. It's interesting that you raised the public revenue because it's something we raised because it was in the exposure draft. And I think it's a standard term that they include in lots of legislation, actually, because it was in my health record, the Remote Health Record Act as well, talking about protecting the public revenue or disclosure of information, which to me is also very alarming. They've actually since removed that in between the exposure draft and it being tabled in Parliament, which I think is a good step. But, you know, you do wonder why it was in there in the first place. But, of course, you're right to raise these kinds of very 
very broad objectives, you know, and then, of course, they've got to fit with the objective of the requesting agency, but, of course, that's very broad. And then I, I think the fact that the Attorney General, for the most serious of the notices, compelling a technology company to, to build a capability for one of these agencies, the Attorney General is required to consider a few things, which includes legitimate now uh, as a result of some of the agitation that we've done between the exposure draft and the draft tabled in Parliament. They've, they've included some considerations like Australia's expect, legitimate expectations in respect to cyber security, but it's nowhere near enough, I don't think, for such a serious responsibility to not have a proper provisions for consultation with experts and, and people who understand digital security, to have consideration of the public interest, the capacity of people who are working on these to be able to disclose these in the public interest. The public interest really is a very distant concern that's not mandatorily required to be considered under the legislation that tells you something to think about what this bill is designed to do. And they can get a company to try and find a weakness in their own security or a way to break their own end-to-end encryption, say in WhatsApp, where it's encrypted on your phone or your computer and then decrypted at the other end. So even if it's not physically possible, they can make you spend money and time forever to find a weakness for them. That's right. So what they've said, there is one protection in the bill. Your, your general proposition there is absolutely correct. So they can get force you to do a bunch of things that can cost a huge amount of money. They don't necessarily have to foot the bill. They might in some circumstances, but there's no requirement that they do it. So obviously, if you're a small tech company, that's not a very nice position to be in. But even to be honest, if you're a large tech company, it's probably not a very nice position to be in. But there is one safeguard because you've raised the idea of what's systemic. And I think I may as well mention it here, which is that there is a safeguard in the legislation which talks about not important a systemic weakness and not preventing the patching of a, a systemic weakness that they know about, essentially, I'm summarising. So what they've said is that we can't require a company to do that. We can't require a company to introduce a systemic weakness and we can't prevent a company from patching a, a known systemic weakness to them. To me, that safeguard is not really worth much because essentially all the other things in acts that they can get somebody to do under the act are so broad, under the bill, I should say, are so broad that I think that looks a lot like a systemic weakness. And of course, unsurprisingly, the, what is a systemic weakness is not defined under the Act. So that's a very tidy way of avoiding that provision meaning much. The other thing that's worth keeping in mind is protection against preventing a company from patching a weakness. Like the fact that the government can't ask a company to do that. I also, I'm not sure that's really worth much in the grand scheme of things. Your listeners probably know about how the WannaCry worm came into being. It was a weakness in the Microsoft systems that was identified by the NSA and was not disclosed to Microsoft because Presumably, the NSA was using it for its own purposes. And then eventually, when that weakness was stolen or lost, we're not exactly sure, it unleashed absolute craziness, really, on digital systems, including the NHS, for example, the health system in the UK, which then meant that people couldn't access their records, ambulances were diverted, all because the systemic weakness that was known to the NSA wasn't disclosed to Microsoft. So there's no need for them to tell a company, for example, that they've identified a systemic weakness so it can be patched. What they're doing is allowing agencies to prioritise their own interests in doing their job at the expense of ensuring that our systems are secure. And they're not allowed to warn their users. Like if Apple was told to break its own encryption, they wouldn't be able to warn people that they're not secure anymore. 
Absolutely not. In fact, there's hefty consequences that are faced by people who just do disclose information. That's one component of it. But of course, if you were a systems programmer and you were, or you were a developer in some technology company and you were given this job to do, and you were extremely concerned about the ethics of it because you could see the potential problems that it might important to the system, the great weakness that it created, you've also got no capacity to tell anybody about it who, you know, in the public interest is, as you know, we know so much about what happened with the NSA because of Edward Snowden. Well, this act specifically thinks about that and says, if you're going to disclose anything about what you've, what work you've done on, on these notices or requests for assistance under this act, then you'll be penalised quite heavily with fines and all sorts of stuff. So it's definitely designed to not be public or subject to public scrutiny in that way. A $10 million fine for the company and 10 years in jail for individuals? It's certainly something I wouldn't want to face, that's for sure. It just sounds really over the top. So no mistakes in the system or abuses of the system will ever get reported for feedback because no one's allowed to tell anyone anything. That's right. Yeah, it's really worrying. I think what actually should be the case is that if you identify systemic weakness in an intelligence agency, you should be required to disclose it to a company so that it can't be used by others. Because otherwise we're just creating a system of like digital warfare where people can hoard digital weaponry and use it against their enemies, but then it can also be used against them. And this is a really alarming problem in my view. I don't want to be caught up in some huge digital war where key systems that we rely on for mass transit, health devices, banking, shopping online, all this stuff is undermined by the interests of security agencies. It makes me very alarmed. And I think we need a rebalance of power away from those agencies and towards the people who they're supposed to represent and work for, which is citizens and the public. Your latest Mm. update from Apple might have spyware from the Australian government on it. Absolutely right. Yep, that's the plan for sure. And it might just be, you know, facilities for them to be able to get into the program. I mean, one obvious way is if you're, you know, you're having a WhatsApp message with somebody and there's another person in that message chat, but you can't see them. That's an example of the system is not working as it should. It's been potentially included, for example, as part of an update. So in fact, what it's doing is turning their software updates into things that are useful for interception agencies, so intelligence agencies and others, and not what the user expects, which is really what we mean, I suppose, when we talk about that. Not through back doors or any sort of untoward means, but legitimately, appropriately, with the force of law, in the usual way. Didn't the government promise they'd never ask for a back door? And isn't this exactly a back door? I think so. So, I mean, I wouldn't be the first person to be shocked that the government has perhaps not told the whole truth. Yeah, I mean, I think they like to tell everybody that it's not a backdoor, but then, you know, when you ask them what a backdoor would be, I'm not sure they'd be able to answer. One of the things that makes me really worried about this is actually that it's been, you know, it was waved through the coalition party room pretty quickly. There was very little time for ex- for comments on the draft that was released early. It's now been tabled in Parliament. There's very little time for comment. It will be put before a committee for one day next week. You know, these things are being rushed through extremely quickly and I'm not convinced that lawmakers who are voting on this truly understand it. So they might accept, oh, it's not a backdoor without having any knowledge of what that means in practice, without being able to define what a backdoor is and isn't. And I don't think that's the standard we ought to expect of lawmakers. I think they should take the time to understand this, especially given the breadth of the provisions. You're listening to Ian Wolfe in conversation with Lizzie O'Shea from Digital Rights Watch about the Anti-Encryption Assistance and Access Bill that may be passed in Parliament next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com 
We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. My understanding is they'll also be able to demand your passwords and that you unlock your phone for them. Yeah, that's true too. I mean, that's quite common now in the US as well, but... Yeah, I'm not. I'm not happy about that. I don't know if you guys are. I mean, like they they claim that all their investigations involve encryption. So this or ninety percent. You know, there's all these figures thrown about about how many of their investigations agencies. I mean, like ASIO and others, confront encryption as a problem as an access to information. And I have no doubt that that's true. But I also think people who engage in very serious criminal activity are, are extremely sophisticated technology users. So I, I think it's quite silly to assume that you can get around them through heavy-handed legislation that is extremely broad. It's You realise how it's not quite fit for purpose. If there's very limited situations, for example, where you might need to use a sophisticated technological tool to confront very serious criminal activity and bring those potential perpetrators to justice, then, for example, why wouldn't you include a judicial, judicial scrutiny of the process of creating this tool? So one thing that's completely absent from the legislation is any requirement that the request for assistance or the notice go before a judicial officer. So there's nobody double-checking no that what they're doing is okay. So you're required to have an underlying warrant for whatever you're doing, but if you need, if you require certain information, you've got a warrant for that, and your only way to access that is by asking a technology company to build a tool, requiring that they build a tool and able to get access to that information, you're, you don't require a warrant for that second step. And I think it's worth, it's very, it's kind of a conceptual problem there because the decision is made around a warrant based on the value to the, the people investigating the potential offences, but also like the, the broader context. And if a judicial officer was required to consider the implications of creating a systemic weakness in an enormously important piece of digital infrastructure for the purposes of obtaining information, that's a relevant consideration in issuing the warrant. So you don't need a warrant to be able to request something from a technology company to build this stuff. But of course, you do have to have an underlying warrant for obtaining the information. But to me, that seems like a problem that you wouldn't have judicial scrutiny. If these powers are so desperately needed, going to be used so appropriately by interception agencies, you wonder why then they have a problem with the idea that they should be subjected to judicial scrutiny. And again, that sort of tells me what's really going on. Some of this isn't physically possible. If you've got end-to-end encryption, then there is no way for the company to know what's in the message because they don't have the keys. Malcolm Turnbull, when he was Prime Minister, famously said, The laws of mathematics are very commendable, but the only laws that applies in Australia is the law of Australia. Mm. So can a company be asked to just spend an infinite amount of money and time on something that could never work? Well, I suppose we have to wait and see how it's it's used. But, uh, I mean, potentially, yes. I don't know to what extent that might elicit resistance from a company. Like, people will remember the issue around assessing the, the Apple iPhone that was used in the San Bernardino attacks and the fact that the company didn't have capacity to get around the passcode requirement on the phone. Apple went to court. They went to court with the FBI and said, we, we don't want to have to build a whole new system that will update onto the phone just for the purpose of getting access to this. It's extremely expensive and difficult. It also is very valuable information that could be used for nefarious purposes if it falls into the wrong hands. And they fought and resisted. Like, I've got a lot of problems with Apple, no doubt, as many people do. But I also think that was the right stance to take in that situation. And so we may see resistance like that, which I think is encouraging. But the way that the legislation is drafted is allows that, that kind of practice to take place. So there aren't 
specific limits, no, on how much you can spend and how much time you can put into these things, which is alarming. It just seems that there's no oversight and no limits. And really, the politicians don't seem to understand the limits of the technology or even any of the technology. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Absolutely. You're right. Really, I can't imagine that the politicians do understand the implications of this. I mean, the, the other thing to be said is that the public is engaged in this issue and it's really distressing to me that the, there would be such great public engagement on it and the politicians would still not respect that. Digital Rights Watch solicited from the public submissions to the exposure draft so when it was first released and 14,000 people ended up putting in the submission and then there were numerous other submissions from very serious companies and agencies and civil rights organisations and that doesn't seem to have been taken up and considered properly, which is really troubling. And I think we, the fact of the matter is that most people do care about their privacy and their security and they see how they're linked in a mutually reinforcing way and the government's arguments around this stuff don't wash anymore. But our reps aren't doing the work that they are elected to do, which is to represent us and that's that's a real problem. It's been suggested that the legislation would allow Australia to spy on behalf of other countries that aren't allowed to spy on their own citizens because we don't have human rights legislation. Mm. Does that seem right to you? Well, I think there will be an information sharing regime between countries and there's all sorts of ways in which that can happen as well because if you're asked to create a tool by the Australian government for one purpose, it becomes very difficult to refuse to hand over that tool to other states in the intelligence alliance. So if a company is asked to do something in Australia, you can see how then it's very easy for an American agency to ask that company for that same tool themselves. And so it creates lowest common denominator in terms of security and lots of tools that are then available to lots of people in the agencies that exist in the Five Eyes. And so I think they will know about the kinds of tools that have been created and share that information. But of course, all this stuff happens behind closed doors and we have very little knowledge and accountability about it. So it's very hard to obviously say, apart from speculation as to how that will work. And of course, if the government has backdoors into the system or even has your password stored somewhere insecurely, there's a big chance that a hostile foreign power or just criminals will get access to your system. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what happened with the NSA. And obviously that resulted in lots of big problems for digital infrastructure systems like the NHS, as I mentioned before. So, yeah, it's really one of my big concerns, actually, is what their plans are for storage of this information, these these tools and processes that they've created under this Act, if it gets um, passed into force, which is, you know, what, how will they make sure that this stuff doesn't get into the wrong hands and what kind of comfort do we have in that respect? Does the top cop in the Northern Territory have a plan for how they're going to store this tool that they've required a company to create to access some iPhone that they've found that they believe has been involved in a crime. Like, that's a pretty alarming prospect. I'm not sure that digital, the management of those digital assets is going to be well done and, and that puts us all at risk. The Australian government doesn't do computers very well. So there's been massive numbers of breaches in every type of data that they store for the Australian public. So My Health Records has been breached lots of times. Centrelink records have been breached lots of times. Immigration records have been breached. I don't think there's anything that hasn't been breached. So why would this be safe? I think that's a very good question. They don't have a good track record. In fact, they've had lots of breaches of, you know, through contractors. There was a military contractor as well who lost a computer and access to all sorts of data. I mean, there was old cabinet found in a secondhand furniture store that was full of government material. Like, there's all sorts of ways in which they're not very good at storage. So I completely think that that's a 
valid concern that hasn't been dealt with properly. And in fact, even the best at this in the business, the NSA, has lost stuff. So every time you create stuff, you have to assume the worst case scenario that it will get into the wrong hands. And what are the what are the implications of that? I don't think you can assume that you'll ever have foolproof storage. So that makes the task of introducing a weakness into an encrypted system all the more greater. It involves much greater responsibility. And so, yeah, I think we have to assume the worst when we're doing this. And that means that, you know, it should only be used in the most drastic circumstances, if at all. And uh, it should have proper scrutiny processes in place. And that's none of which we see in this bill. And if people aren't happy about this, what action can they take? So Digital Rights Watch is helping to coordinate submissions to the joint committee, which is responsible for looking at this bill. You can still make submissions. You don't have much time, but you can. You can also write to the members of the committee. You can go on our website and you can see who the members of the committee are and you can write to them directly about your concerns and ask for, if nothing else, more time to properly consider this so that all lawmakers can get across the detail. And obviously Digital Rights Watch runs all sorts of campaigns and issues throughout on other campaigns and other kinds of topics. So you can sign up to our list and get and, and learn more about it. But we try to make it as easy as possible for people to have a say. And so I'd encourage you, if you're concerned about it, to do something in that respect as well. Well, Lizzie O'Shea, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That was Lizzie O'Shea from Digital Rights Watch, talking about the Assistance and Access Bill. Find out more at digitalrightswatch.org.au. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone or use the voicemail tab on the website. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contribution, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. If you're a science or technology researcher, send me an email and we'll chat on the show. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Join my Patreons in supporting the show at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Sound checking by Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, 7LTN City Park Radio in Launceston, Tasmania, and my local station, 2RDJ, in Burwood, New South Wales. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos from this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 950 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. 
You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.